Hello and welcome to Move, a podcast which is hosted by me, Jamie Lang, and my business partner, Ed Williams. Now, in 2012, Ed and I founded our confectionery business, Candy Kittens, a business which I'd actually dreamed of having ever since I was six years old. And honestly, we wouldn't have achieved half of what we've been able to without all the amazing tips and advice we picked up along the way. Move stands for Motivation, Opportunity, Vision, Entrepreneurship. And each episode of the podcast, we're bringing you the stories of founders, innovative thinkers, entrepreneurs and winners who show us all what's possible with hard work and focus. So whatever you're moving towards, we hope today's guests will open your eyes to what you can achieve. This is Move. Hello, lovely listeners. Uh, If you have stumbled across Move, hello, welcome. If you have always been with Move, hey, welcome back. Uh, Obviously, I'm here with Ed, and uh, today we're very excited because we have someone who was a real help in our lives, Lord Mark Price. A lord. A lord. A lord. Uh, Ed actually bowed when he came in the room. (laughs) Um, Now, Lord Mark Price is an amazing guy. He uh, believes that the journey is more important than reaching a destination. Uh, It's all about people more than strategy. The team is more important than the individual. Happy and engaged team delivers more. I love that one. Politics is different to business. Love the customers you have. So good. And of course, we've known Mark for a little while now. What is it? Uh, probably six, seven years ago that we first bumped into Mark at that that party. Yeah, amazing. Because he was managing director of Waitrose, uh, uh, a place where we really wanted to get into with our suites. We met him there. He helped us out. He then went on to chairman the John Lewis Partnership. He's written books. He's worked with uh, in Parliament. He has done a lot more, not probably than me, Ed, but a lot more than you have. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, this guy is a real, real retail expert. But beyond that, I think what he knows about people, how to manage a team and how to build a successful team, for me, that's the most exciting bit. What's great about him as well is that he founded his brand new project, which is called Engaging Works, which is basically about finding happiness in the workplace. As we said in the quotes at the beginning, which I really, really love, uh, the team is more important than the individual and happy and engaged teams deliver more, which I think is so important. I'm really excited about this podcast. Uh, thanks, Mark, for coming on. It's, uh, you know, it means a huge amount. Here he is, Lord Mark Price on Move. Uh, Mark, do you know what? I actually think before we start the podcast off, we have to probably uh, say somewhat of a thank you to not you, but probably more your daughter, who was the person who actually introduced me to you at an event. What was it now? Seven years ago? Easily, I would say. Maybe eight years ago. Um, We were at an event. It was a Waitrose event. And I think uh, Waitrose had just sponsored England cricket. If that's right, I could be wrong. And your daughter, I didn't know it was your daughter, came up to me and we were trying to get candy kittens into Waitrose. And you gave a lovely talk about Waitrose in the future and John Lewis and all these different things. And she said, oh, can I have a photo? And I said, yes. And I said, and she said, oh, that's my dad. And I said, will you steal a moment with your dad for me. And she said, yeah, I can do that. And I went, oh God. And then I started to freak out that I had made a mistake, but she dragged me over to you. And you probably won't remember, or maybe you do. And we shook hands. And I still think that's how we got our product into Waitrose, <laughs> that I was very charming that day. Do you remember it? I do remember it. I remember meeting you, uh, Jamie. I can remember you talking about candy kittens. Um, and uh, I asked you what you wanted to do with the business. And you said you'd love to be listed in Waitrose. And you went through the process and you were listed. But I think what it shows is that um, 
business is all about people and it's all about how you build relationships and how you get on. You can send a thousand emails to somebody saying, I've got a great product, I must see you. But there's almost nothing that can replicate standing in some front of somebody, um, looking in the whites of their eyes and saying that you've developed something and you have a real passion for it. So uh, uh, however it turned out, uh, you certainly took the opportunity well to uh, introduce me to Candy Kissens and what a success it's been. Yeah, but what's so interesting about that, okay, is that I suppose that took confidence, right? And um, Ed and I went to this event together um, and I had the confidence to come up to you and do that. I was 21, 22 years old. And not many 21, 22-year-olds firstly have the opportunity to go to a Waitrose event, uh, but secondly, probably have confidence to go and do that. I was just a bit of a cocky little shit, if I'm honest, and I would go and do things like that. But when you were younger, did you think you had confidence? Were you able to stand up in front of a room and talk, or were you shy and reserved? What were you like? Uh, I I was quite confident. Uh, My dad had his own small business, uh, he owned a grocer shop uh, before I was born, and then uh, he owned a small wholesale business. And so from the youngest age, all I can remember is working. I used to help him unload lorries in the morning, uh, load his van. When I was on my school holidays, I used to go out with him and deliver confectionery and biscuits to local shops uh, and to leisure centres and the kind of places that take orders. Uh, and I would meet all these people and he'd introduce me. Um, at home, people would phone in and uh, place their orders. And so my brother and I would take orders on the telephone. And so really from the earliest stage, I was used to meeting people and talking about business. Um, and my dad had the, my dad used to preach on a Sunday. Uh, and there's a few really key lessons I learned from him. One was, uh, in the eyes of God, we're all equal. Nobody's better than anybody else. We've all got unique skills and unique abilities. And he would say to me, your job in life, Mark, is to find out what those people's skills and abilities are and draw them out and uh, to make the best of them. And he also felt very strongly that... Um, Business was all about personal relationships and doing the right thing. And he always felt there was a a benefit in doing that. And I can remember uh, one day when I was at school and I went out to work uh, with him. By the way, we used to sell McVitie's biscuits. Um, (laughs) um, I went out out with him and it was towards the end of the day and I'd been out all day. And in fact, nowadays, funny enough, they have they have laws against um, child labour, which effectively is what that was. Because <laughs> you'd have been and young, you'd have been. I, I was I was young, um, so probably from the age of oh, six, seven, eight, nine, I can remember, you know, spending my summer holidays, and I'd go out with him and meet all the customers. But can I just quickly jump before you finish that story? Was that because uh, you wanted to be with your father and you admired him so much, or you were almost right? This is what we're doing. I, I think it was a combination of the school holidays were long. He always used to say, come along and keep me company. And I used to go. Um, and I, imagine, I imagine that was good fun as well. No, it, it was good fun. I, re- I remember one day almost being killed by we were overtaking uh, another car on a country road the days before you had to wear seatbelts. But I remember meeting the most amazing people. And so yeah. that gave me a degree of self-confidence, but also the way he is, that, that he didn't feel that he was better than anybody else or anybody else was better than him. So I think it came, came from his values and his beliefs. Um, but I remember one particular day uh, in the summer holiday, it was late in the afternoon, and we were driving home and um, we passed a shop which was being uh, refurbished. Uh, 
And so my dad stopped and said, look, we ought to go and see if uh, this person wants to buy any confectionery biscuits, etc." So we stopped and we went inside and it was a, a young chap and it was his very first shop. And uh, he said he was opening, opening a, a corner shop, grocer shop. And so my dad said, I'd like to supply you. And uh, he said to my dad, you know, that's all well and good. He said, but I haven't got very much money. So my dad, who was really astute, said, look, don't worry about it. I'll supply you now with biscuits and crisps and sweets. And when you've sold them, you can pay me. And the guy thought about it and he said, that's fine. He said, the only thing is I don't know what is going to sell. And I feel a bit nervous about taking full boxes of all these things. So my dad, who was really quick, said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you half boxes and I'll give you an assortment of half boxes. See what sells. And when you've sold them, you can pay me them. So the young chap agreed and uh, my dad and I broke open all these boxes of biscuits and we started to put them on the shelves in his shop and we left and we drove home. And when we got home, we were unloading the van and um, my dad noticed that in one of the boxes, um, instead of giving the chap 12 of 24 packets, we'd actually only given him 11. There were 13 left in the box. So he said to me, Mark, I've made a terrible mistake. And I said, oh, that's okay. I said, you gave them free anyway. I said, just when you go back, say it was only, he said, I can't do that. He said, he'll think I've cheated him. So I said, dad, I want my tea. It's late. He said, no, no, no. He said, we've got to go back. So we got in the van. We drove back 20, 25 minutes with this one packet of biscuits. He went to this young chap and he said, look, I'm really sorry. I made a genuine mistake. We only gave you 11 packets, not 12. Here's the packet. And the chap said, I'm incredibly grateful to you. That's really, really kind of you for doing that. And my dad said, I know how important it is when you start in business that people are thoughtful and they treat you uh, well and pay on time and all of those things. But the, the moral of that story was that that chap went on to build a chain of shops in the Northwest. And even though he could have gone to the big manufacturers directly, he had enough scale, he kept working with my dad. And so the lesson that I learned is that it is about people. It is about being honest and fair. It is about long-term relationships. And if you do that, ultimately, you get your reward. But such quick thinking and good salesmanship combined right. with honesty and, I guess, just doing the right thing as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting that you talk about honesty because uh, we live in a world where uh, honesty does lack. Um, and especially in business, people, you know, you there are programs out there like... Well, they're movies, you know, Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street or uh, Dragon's Den or The Apprentice, which is about being fired or uh, about going into a den and you have yeah. to raise money. Aggressive, if you aggressive kind of lessons in business. Yeah. And all of those things, which, which Ed and I fundamentally believe is the wrong attitude towards business. That attitude where you have to cheat someone over or you have to be bullish or you have to be aggressive or you have to be a bully. Um, is what's represented because that's for some reason represents power. But in fact, the best way to do business is to be honest and to work hard and to make relationships, isn't it? And that's what Ed, you and I have done with Candykin is that we've always been those people to go and create relationships. But Mark, do you think that that discipline, I suppose, that sort of working work ethic that you learned from your father was important growing up? as well and then going into university and things like that having that ethic and that understanding and what you have to do in order to get to a certain place was that important uh i suppose i learned at a really early stage that 
uh, if my dad had a good uh, week or month, uh, he would take us to Landudno and we'd have an ice cream. Uh, if it was a difficult month, uh, my mum used to chase us round the house with a slipper and chastise us for not turning the lights off. So I got a really good sense very on in my life about if you work for yourself and you're setting up a business, what happens if you do well and what happens if you do less well? And so there's always that sense of jeopardy. And I suppose I just kept that with me, even when I was running a, a huge corporate um, in, in running Waitrose, I still felt every day a need and a desire to grow and do better and make sure that the people working in the business were secure. Um, so I don't know where that comes from in every, every individual, that desire to want to make sure that things are safe, secure. But I felt that from an early age. So you grew up in Crewmark and had this brilliant kind of upbringing, exposed to grocery world and, and in its different ways and had these strong values instilled in you as a child. What what yeah. was next for you? What was what happened there? How did you then make the move from from that? beginning and where did you go next you went to university in Lancaster yeah I, I did so um you're right I had very strong values my my dad was uh, a lovely man um he was probably uh, the most contented man I've ever met if he had a bag of sweets in his pocket and a couple of pence then he was as happy as Larry um, my mum was quite or still is quite driven quite curious um, so I grew up in a house that, that I think had great values. Uh, I love sport. I'm absolutely mad on sport. I played football for uh, the school. I played football for Crew Alex Juniors. I played rugby for the school. I played rugby for Crew in Nantwich. But I love golf. I used to play golf with my dad. And I wanted to be a pro golfer. So my great plan was to do my my O-levels and my A-levels, and then after my A-levels, go and be uh, assistant pro at Crew Golf Course. And how good were you at golf? Uh, I was probably good enough to be an assistant golf pro. <laughs> um, so I had quite a low handicap. But my dad said to me, look, go to university. You can play golf there. And then if you still like it, you can do it afterwards. So I went to Lancaster and I read Archaeology and Ancient History. And I did that because I went on a dig in Chester about uh, three years before I went to university. There was a school trip and they were digging the old amphitheatre. And I liked it so much, I arranged to go back on my own at the weekend. And uh, and then the same group went to do a dig in Manchester, um, in Deansgate. So under my own steam, I went at a weekend to, to dig with them. And I just thought it was amazing. I mean, finding... Um, artifacts from the Roman uh, invasion of uh, of the UK and then trying to work out where what they were and where they're from. And I thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing degree to do. So, so I read ancient history and archaeology. I went to work in uh, Rome every summer. I went to Assisi. I lived with the monks um, on a dig there. Uh, I went to Gravina in the heel of uh, Italy on a prehistoric site. And then in my last year at university, I took a diving course. And I was going to take a, an MA and be a marine archaeologist. Uh, they'd found a sunken vessel off the coast of Ostia, just outside the port outside Rome. And I said to my dad, look, I'm, I'm probably going to go and be a marine archaeologist and do my MA. And he said, you know, you, you ought to probably think about getting a proper job. Um, <laughs> and it was 1982 and it was recessionary times. So I said, okay. I applied for three jobs. I applied to the Thompson organization to be a holiday tester. 
um, which I just thought must be the most amazing job. <laughs> is that, wait, is <laughs> that under the bracket a proper job? Yes. <laughs> what is a holiday tester? Well, uh, apparently, I, I didn't even get an interview because I, I really can't speak any language as well, but apparently you were flown around the world to test different holiday packages <laughs> and then to come back and report on them. So you were like, you would like the, um, you were like a sort of innovative influencer. That's what you, you, yeah. you Yeah, like. I, I think that there's a different role for that on social media these days. Um, but that was a proper job back in the day. Uh, and then I applied to Marks and Spencer and John Lewis, and they both offered me jobs uh, on the graduate training programs. And the reason I joined John Lewis is because it had uh, two golf courses and five ocean-going yachts. So I thought, well, this has got to be a pretty amazing business. And uh, I stayed there for 34 years because the values of the organization just match perfectly the values that I'd been raised with. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. But also what they did is they matched your upbringing in terms of business. And you were dealing with your dad who had a corner shop and did, worked in the sort of grocery sector and things like that. Um, and how much did you kind of realize that, that you were actually sort of following in some ways in your dad's footsteps? Or did it not come, did you not think that way? No, I, no, I, I didn't store really because I went into a large corporate um, I went into department stores. So I spent my first 17 years in the John Lewis partnership in department stores. And then I spent the next, uh, sorry, 17 years. And I spent the next 17 years in Waitrose. It, it never sort of felt as though I was following in, in that way. But what's interesting, I think, is that uh, a lot of people uh, go to university like you, you did, like I did, like Ed did. And a lot of people who are listening to this and, you know, they call it now the lost year where you leave university and you're kind of stuck and you don't really know what to do. And you think, and that's when you sort of panic and you go, right, I need to go and do something. Did you just apply to jobs and to Mark Spencer's and John Lewis and things like that because you just thought, well, I'll just apply there. But or did you have some sort of plan in place? Well, I knew, obviously I knew retailing because of my dad. Um, and I knew that Marks and Spencer and John Lewis were really good businesses. Uh, so that's why I was applied. But I never intended to stay. My thought was I'd go there, I'd do a few years. But when I got there, I discovered that I really liked the culture of the John Lewis partnership and all that it stands for. And um, and so I, I really felt at, at home as I progressed through the business. Quite often, um, so, so when I arrived as a graduate, there were five of us. And I was mad keen to be the first to be promoted, to be a section manager, to be a department manager. And we had a really brilliant managing director of the, the shop that I was at, which is called Tyrrell and Green in Southampton. It's now called John Lewis Southampton. And um, he got wind of the fact that I was rather disappointed to be the last of the five graduates to be promoted to be department manager. So he called me up to his office and sat me down. And he's, he asked me what was going on. And I confessed that I was disappointed. I felt I'd worked hard. And he looked at me and he said, Mark, you don't judge your career over a year or two years. You judge your career over a lifetime. 
And that really resonated with me. And what I discovered as I went through is that when I became a general manager or a managing director, I thought that it was going to give me this huge buzz. You know, I'd kind of got there, I'd made it. But it was a temporary thing. It was a fleeting happiness because as soon as you'd sat in the desk and had a few days there, you were thinking about, well, what am I going to do next? And so my views changed and I started to recognise that where I drew real satisfaction was about the team that I worked with, the success that we achieved together and celebrating that success together. So getting there became um, the real part of the enjoyment rather than arriving. And one of the things I always used to say to the new graduates when I was uh, when I was running Waitrose uh, eventually was um, they'd, they'd come into a room and I had a meeting with them. There'd normally be about 15 or 20 graduates joining Waitrose in any one year. And I would ask them how many of them wanted to do my job, how many of them wanted to be managing director, and probably three quarters would put their hand up. And so I would then say to them that the average tenure of a corporate chief executive is about four years. And if they were lucky, they might get to do it twice, if they were really lucky. So then I would say to them, at what age do you think you would like those four years? Or if you're very lucky, those eight years. And they'd all pretty well say, my mid-40s. And so I would say to them, so you're 21 today, what are you going to do for the next 24 years? Because you've got to fill it with something that's enjoyable. You've got to enjoy the process of getting where you're getting to. Now, for a lot of people, they don't want to go on that corporate trip and be you know, the CEO of a company. Others along the way discover they really like HR or they prefer logistics or they want to go into accounting. And they branch off and they do their own things. There are other people like you both who are inspirations who at a very early stage say, no, actually, we want to create something for ourselves. And so I think that trying to decide at the age of 21 where you want to be when you're 45 is incredibly difficult. So being open-minded, being flexible, taking a decade to just soak up experiences, as many as you can, and really try and find out what <clears throat> makes you tick, I think is most important in those early working years. I think that's such such good kind of advice and such a neat uh, I suppose an old school perspective, but actually something that's sort of really missing today. I know that the very, I remember the very first time we ever interviewed for a role at Candy Kittens and we were interviewing this candidate and I was asking some some other people for tips about how you interview someone and what, what do you look for? Because I'd never interviewed anybody in my life. Did you life. think you were very important? I thought I was very important that day. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, look at the CV and see where they've been working before. And one thing to look out for, don't ever hire anybody that's moved around a lot. You know, if they've only ever been somewhere for one year there and six months there. And I sort of thought, okay, well, but actually what I've learned over the last five years, six years of interviewing people, it's now very, very rare to find anybody with a CV that's actually stayed at a company for longer than two or three years. And obviously as people now in our generation are much, much less patient they want to kind of move around a lot more. I suppose that kind of Instagram, social media generation has played a part of that. What is it, do you think, at the John Lewis partnership that, that keeps people tied in? And, and why is it famous for being such a great place to work? So um, I think there's two things I'd say to that. First of all, John Lewis were very good at moving me on. So I was constantly getting new challenges. So I worked in every area of the business. I worked in finance. I worked in logistics. Uh, I worked in buying. I worked in selling. So it gave me a broad perspective of all the types of job that you could have 
And then they were very open about you going to work in any one of those. So that's one of the advantages of going into a, a large corporate. And there was a very structured training plan. Also, every week on the back of their journals and on their website, they advertise every job that's available all over the country. And they're very open to people moving around. So you're encouraged to develop and you're encouraged to move. So that's one reason why people stay. Yeah. But, but was it, that marked down to you? Because I think what I've gathered from you is that you were very curious. So you, like your, you said your mum was, you you did archaeology, you like to travel, you like to do different things. Did you want to go and try these different things because they thought you were good or because you wanted Percy to go and try everything? Um, I suspect it's a combination of both, actually. I think they wanted me to be as rounded as I possibly could be, and I wanted to be as rounded as I possibly could be. So in that sense, the, the, the culture was a good fit for me. Speed and Lewis, who set up the John Lewis Partnership, said that... Um, uh, when you're recruiting for a job, you should always prioritise an internal candidate over an external candidate. And that's because he felt culture and understanding of culture was so important. And therefore, a lot of time and energy was put into training and development of current people. So when I became marketing director of Waitrose, I was called up to see the then chairman who sat me down and said, Mark, you've been in department stores for 17 years. You've just um, had three years running John Lewis Cheadle, which you opened. Uh, we're really pleased with what you've done. We'd now like you to go to Waitrose to be the marketing director. Well, I'd never worked in food retailing and I'd never done marketing. <laughs> and so I said, well, I don't know anything. So he said, well, we'll send you to INSEAD to do a marketing course. We'll send you to the London Business School. Uh, we'll set up for you to meet the best marketeers and ad agencies in the UK. And um, we'll make sure you're trained. And, and good to their word, they did all of that. And I saw him later and I said, why didn't you recruit somebody who was a proven food retailing marketeer or at least a proven marketeer and he said to me well I could have done but my reckoning was it would be better to train you how to do it than to try and train somebody to understand our culture and drop in at a senior management level and so there's been in the John Lewis Partnership for a very long time they, they had something which they called uh, a monastic expansion policy they only grew as quickly as they could grow people. So monasteries are very old. They set up the monastery. Then somebody would leave the monastery and go and set up a new monastery. It was much the same. You only grow as quickly as you grow your people. And that's the determinant on whether you can keep your culture or whether you lose your culture. So there are organisations that go out and they buy another business. So let's say Candy Kittens goes and buy Kraft Foods. You're going to have nice. a culture difference. <laughs> You're going to have a culture difference. And you've then got to work out, is that good? Is that bad? Do I change it? Whereas if you decide that you're going to be as big as craft, but you're going to do it yourselves, it will take longer, but you'll retain a culture. So there are big decisions for entrepreneurs always to make about how quickly do I want to grow? How much control do I want to keep over the culture? The best description of culture I ever heard was it's the sediment of past transactions. So every day now, you and Candy Kittens are building a culture. People see what you do, they see how you behave, and they follow that. And when new people come, almost by osmosis, they pick up the culture that you've created. And in the John Lewis partnership, you've had that for 100 years now. Mm. Because the guy who set it up, Speed and Lewis, had this really radical idea. Uh, he uh, and his brother Oswald worked in the business with his father, John Lewis, Speed and Lewis had a riding accident. He was off work for 
six months or so, long time convalescing. And during that period, he worked out that he his, and his brother and his father earned more than all the other people working in John Lewis at that time. And he thought that wasn't fair. He also saw the conditions that some of the workers were living in who were also off sick. And he saw what was happening in Russia with the revolution and the spread of communism. And he thought there's got to be a better way of doing business. So he put all the chairs of the John Lewis partnership in trust for all of the people that worked in the partnership. And 10 years after his accident in 1928, he eventually, after his father died, moved all the shares and he set up a, or he wrote a written constitution. And uh, the first thing the constitution of the John Lewis partnership says is that its supreme purpose is the happiness of the people that work there. So the John Lewis partnership exists for the happiness of its employees. And what the very clever Speed and Lewis worked out, which business schools are only just catching on to now, is if you have a happy and engaged workforce, you have less staff turnover, less sick absence, people uh, are better trained, they work harder, they're more productive. And recent research says that companies with the most engaged and the happiest staff have profits that are 20% higher, have productivity that's 20% higher, have earnings per share that's 134% higher, have lower sick absence, lower wastage, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a link between how happy and engaged your people are and the commercial success that you'll enjoy over the medium long term. And so Speeden, effectively 100 years after he thought that, has been vindicated with modern academic research. But what's interesting there, okay, and we're going to get on to happiness and everything within the workplace, but you talk about culture and how important culture is. And in your personal opinion, what is more important, growth in a business or keeping the culture? Because I don't think you can have the two side by side. If you want to grow a company as quickly and as fast as possible and you get these big tech companies or these big unicorns that are just growing, growing, how can you maintain culture within something that that is growing so much and you're employing 10 to 50 to 100 people a week? What do you do there? Well, it depends on the business, uh, frankly. Uh, If you are a tech business, if you're a Facebook, uh, you probably in some ways don't need that big a team to have a global reach. And so um, uh, there are unicorns and startups now that have got 50 or 100 people that have got global reach and are worth billions. So you can control the culture in that way. As soon as you start having people scattered across the world in different offices, um, it becomes more difficult. So it depends to what extent you're reliant on people. Because all business is about people. When I was running Waitrose, I always used to say, 80% of the job is about people and making sure the people are are happy and motivated. Uh, 15% of the job is about implementing new ideas for which you need the people to be happy and motivated. And and 5% is strategy. I mean, uh, there are a whole host of strategies that can work if your people are really committed to them and if they are well implemented. So for me... It's the people that comes first and the culture that comes with that, that people understand what the business stands for, and then you can trust them. You know, if you bring somebody in and they know what you would think, uh, Jamie, they know what you would think, Ed, if you were in that position, almost through osmosis they picked up, well, you know, Jamie and Ed would do this. Then the whole culture works in your favour. If you recruit somebody and they've got no idea, you're growing at 100 miles an hour and it's, let's just flog more of this stuff that anybody would want to flog it to you start to lose your values. 
Jamie, bad news. That is the end of part one. What? I know, I know. We got there so quick, but don't fear. Part two is coming right up, just one click away. So everybody that's listening, just go over and click part two. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, it really does mean a huge amount. And we also hope today's podcast has inspired you to move towards your dream or passion. Now, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. And if you'd like to get in touch, please email us at move at moveclub.co.uk or follow us on Instagram at moveclub. Until next time, this is Move. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.